Thank you, David, and the rest of our worship team as well. well. Good morning to you. Good to see you this morning. As we jump into our time of teaching today, I want to first pause to dismiss our children who are fourth grade and under to head upstairs, along with our leaders for Kids Crew. This is a time of worship designed for them. And as we worship and continue in our time of study together, they're going to continue by studying as well this morning, learning stories of God's love for them and connecting those truths to our hope in Jesus. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 2. We are working our way through the Bible this year, looking at key points along the way. We're calling this redemption story as we are tracing this story of redemption from beginning to end of the scripture, seeing that the 66 books of the Bible tell one story of God's work in redeeming us and setting us free from sin. And all of it ultimately is pointing the way to Jesus. And we're this morning, we find ourselves in the book of Judges. We're going to be reading from Judges chapter 2 this morning. Just to sort of recap where we've been the last few weeks, last few months, really, just in, in the broadest sense, we see that God has chosen a people. He's chosen Israel as his nation with whom he would have a special relationship, a covenant relationship. And it was through that relationship that he, that he told Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And as God has worked through the covenant relationship with Israel, he's led them through ups and downs. And they have now come into the promised land. They have entered into the promised land, the, the, the land that God told them that he would give them as their, their home, the, their place to dwell. And even in that, it was a fulfillment of God's love and his, and his goodness, his kindness to them. So we saw that in the book of Joshua. Last week, we were in Joshua chapter 1. And now we've moved into the period of the judges. The period of the judges is often thought of as sort of an, uh, an in-between period of sorts because with Moses and then with Joshua after him, God led Israel with this, this patriarch, this, this key leader. But now God is raising up a series of leaders who would serve to lead the people. These are the judges, and we'll read about it as we continue our daily Bible readings in the book of Judges this week, the last few days and into the next few days. But what we see again and again in the story of Judges, and this is really where we're going to spend our time this morning, is that as as God's people wander away from his call, he's pursuing them. He's working to draw them back into a right relationship with him. We just sang these words in that song, uh, come thou fount of every blessing. We sang the words, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's an acknowledgement of this reality that we live with, that we want to do the right things, but we find ourselves falling into sin again and again. That's the wondering, right? Prone to wonder. And yet even in that, God is loving, he's patient, he's faithful, he's pursuing us all the while. And we'll see that even this morning with our study in Judges chapter two. You know, there are lots of things that, that we commonly know that that are attributed to someone, but we find out that maybe that person didn't actually say that thing, right? And, and, and so you do some investigating and you do some digging. One of those that's really common, and maybe you've heard this before, any, everyone has probably heard of Einstein's definition of insanity, right? You know Einstein's definition of insanity, which is 
that you do the same thing again and again and you expect a different result. The problem is Einstein never said that. It's not really Einstein's definition of insanity. Somewhere along the way, it was attributed to him. And Albert Einstein, as we know, was a colorful figure. And so he had a lot of uh, witty sayings, a lot of uh, these witticisms is what I would call them, little, little sayings that, that might be attributed to him. But this one in particular was never, to the, to the best of what we know, actually said by Einstein, although somewhere along the way, people began attributing that to Einstein. Actually, the saying itself, as nearly as it can be traced, can, can be traced to an author in the early 1980s, but even from there, others have done more investigating and say that there are, there are influences of this saying that go back as far as like the 19th century, which would be the 1800s. And so we don't know for sure. Bottom line is nobody knows exactly where the saying came from. It's one of those sayings that popped up along the way and people began kind of gravitating toward it. But even though Einstein didn't say it, okay, the, the reality is there's some good common sense in that saying, that if we do the same thing again and again and again, but we expect a different outcome, then the truth is we're, we're deceiving ourselves, are we not? Because if we keep doing the same things, at least so, so would go sort of the common idea. Now, the reality is there are some things that it's through doing them again and again and again that you sort of perfect the moment. You perfect the craft. You perfect what, what you're doing, at least in as much as you, you figure things out over time. But this is the point, really, of, of where I wanted to go with all of that. That idea that we, would, that we would do the same thing again and again and expect a different result really is instructive in thinking about the nation of Israel in the period of the judges, because here they are doing the same things again and again, the same sins over and over, the same problems year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, all the while thinking that if we just keep doing this somehow, it's going to produce a different result. But the result is always the same. The people of God wander away from him when they begin to look to themselves, rely on themselves instead of trusting God, instead of walking in faithfulness and obedience to his instruction. And then God would raise up a judge. He would raise up a leader who would lead the nation to confess their sin, who would lead the nation to get right with him. Revival would break out. People would experience that sweeping movement of God, get their hearts right. And then in time, they would fall back into the same ruts, the same routines. And I would imagine that if I could go around the room and, and if we could sit down and spend time together and, and, and I could hear your story and get to know you, much less if you could do the same with me, we probably would find a very similar pattern lived out in our lives as well, if we're being honest. That we, we go through life, and, and life seems to be this roller coaster of sorts of ups and downs, highs and lows, good and bad. And sometimes it may seem really extreme, and sometimes perhaps it seems uh, less extreme. But the, nonetheless, the, the idea, no matter what the amplitude of the highs and the lows might be, the, the truth is that we have the, the two steps forward, the one step back, the up, the down, the mountaintop, the valley. We, we experience those things. And what I want us to see, what I hope we learn through our study in Judges, is that even in the low moments, even in the wonderings, even in what I would describe as the spiritual valleys, 
God is there, and his love is there, and he's constant in his pursuit of us. And at every turn, if we would turn back to him, if we would do what, it's, what is right, then we will find that he is ready and willing to receive us and to move in power. The time is always right to do what is right and to walk with the Lord. And that's one of the, the key lessons we learn in the Judges is that it's always the right time to turn our hearts to the Lord. It's always the right time to repent of sin, to confess sin, to do what he has instructed us to do in order that we might experience his power, his work, and our hearts. And we see that. We'll, we will see that we, in, throughout our study of the book of Judges, but especially even in Judges chapter 2 this morning. So I want us to read together from Judges 2. We're going to start in verse 8 this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 8. Judges chapter 2, verse 8, as we read about the children of Israel at the end of Joshua's life as they transition into the leadership of the judges. Judges chapter 2, verse 8, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And there, that generation, all that were gathered together to their fathers... There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, let's pause for a moment. This really is the, the root of the problem. If, if we were going to diagnose the issue in Joshua's day, much less in our day, this really encapsulates sort of the heart of the matter, in this verse, there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, we ought to ask ourselves the questions, why? Why did this generation not know the Lord? Why did this generation not know the works that God had done for them? And we're left to try to fill in the, those gaps ourselves to a degree. Now, we see it. We see the results of it, though the book of Judges doesn't state it overtly or, or very explicitly. We see the result. And effectively, effectively here, here's the answer. This is, this is the, sort of my summary of, of the issue, is that you have generations who are walking with the Lord, but they aren't passing the faith on to those who come behind them. You, you have people who might know the Lord, who maybe have experienced his power, people who walked across the Jordan on the dry ground, who, who gathered the stones and, and built the altar that God instructed them to do so that in the generations to come, we saw this in the book of Joshua chapter 4, when your children ask, why are these stones here and what is the Lord has done? You might tell them that this is where we cross the river on dry ground. And yet, they didn't tell their children. They didn't share their stories. They didn't pass off the faith to the generation to come. And the result was that there arose a generation who didn't know the Lord. Church, can we just stop there and say that this is something that is, this is something that, that, that is so key to who we are and the ministry that we do and, and what we're all about, that we understand that it is our job to pass off the faith to the next generation. That's why just a moment ago when we said, all right, we're going to dismiss the kids and, and all these little ones popped up and they ran on upstairs. That's why we do what we do. That's why we invest in that generation. 
is because we don't want there to be a generation who would come behind us who don't know the Lord and don't know the things of the Lord. And so we're investing in that generation unashamedly. Unashamedly, if you were to study our church calendar, if you were to study our church budget, if you were to look at where we invest our resources and our time and our efforts, unashamedly, it is skewed toward the younger generation. Does that mean that the older generations don't matter to us? Not at all. Not in the least. But it means that we understand that it's the responsibility of those of us who have walked with the Lord for a longer period of time to be grounded in the faith, to know the faith, and to be handing off the faith to those who come beyond us. Now, you'll never reach the point, this side of heaven anyway, this side of glory, you'll never reach the point where you've, you've got it all figured out. You'll never reach the point where, where you know everything and, and, and you, you, you don't need anybody to teach you and you don't need to be instructed. That's, that's not the point. That, that's a spiritual arrogance that I pray none of us ever, ever uh, knows. But nonetheless... The longer we've walked with the Lord, the older we get, the more seasoned we become. The more it falls to us to accept this, what I'm going to call this burden, this burden of knowing the Lord, walking with the Lord, and passing that on to the generation to come. Raising them up so that someday they can turn around and do the same. Because none of us got where we are without someone who went before us who ran that race and then at some point in time handed the baton to us. Each of us, we have people in our lives who have influenced us, people who have taught Sunday school, who, who, uh, who changed our diapers in the nursery, who went as sponsors to camp, who, who invested, who mentored, who met with, who, who counseled us in our moment of need, who taught us the Bible, who preached the truths to us, who led us in worship. We've all had people who invested us along the way, invested in us along the way. And now it's our responsibility and you might say, well, how do I know if it's my responsibility? If you didn't get up and run upstairs with them when I said it was time to go, which is everyone who's left, right? Then you, you have some degree of responsibility, whether you're 12 years old or whether you're 82 years old. The, the level of responsibility may be different, of course. But the point is, the more we grow in our faith, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more responsibility we have in some of these things. This week, I celebrated a birthday. I turned 45 years old. On Friday, I was six years old when I gave my heart to Jesus and seven years old by the time that I was baptized. So it was right around this time of year when I was six years old. And if you do the backward math, that means for 39 years now, I've walked with the Lord. Now, I understand that there, there are many in the room who you've walked with the Lord for a lot longer, but there are also a number of people. I'm, I've arrived at that season in my life where the gray hairs are starting to show up and, you know, things start to hurt more and more when I get out of bed in the morning and those kind of things. And little by little, I'm, I'm getting there. And, and I can truly say now, I've walked with the Lord longer than a lot of you have been alive. And yet, here's the point. Here's the point. I didn't get here overnight where I am and... I didn't, I didn't get here without people along the way who loved God and who invested in me. And now my responsibility is to love the Lord and to invest in others. May we all understand that we have been given the same task, the same burden, the same responsibility 
so that this truth will not be said of us. May it never be said of the First Baptist Church of Chickasha that there arose a generation of them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for First Baptist Church. Now, may that also not just be true of this church, but all our churches. But I don't pastor those churches, right? I pastor First Baptist Church. And so on my watch, I will do everything within my power and my leadership to lead us to be a people who accept this burden, this responsibility to hand the faith off. And, and I could almost just stop there, give the invitation, here we go. We get to church extra, get to the, the, the restaurants extra early today, right? Because that's the message. Now I'm not done. You know that you see the notes. I haven't even gotten to the points yet. But the, the, the main idea is this. The main idea is this. The key issue, if we were going to diagnose the problem in Joshua's day, and it's still a problem that we face today, is that there arose a generation who did not know the Lord. And everything else that we're going to talk about really follows from that. We must be determined not to let that happen so that there would never be a generation that could say, well, no one, no one taught us these things. You remember? If, and this is where studying our way and reading our way through the Bible is instructive. You remember a few weeks ago in our study of Deuteronomy? You remember the title that I gave that message from Deuteronomy chapter 6? Always remember to never forget. The last thing effectively that Moses said to the nation of Israel before he died was, my people, you must always remember to never forget what God has done. And sadly, here they are, a generation, we'll say, removed, and they've forgotten already. And it happens that easily. So we have to be on guard. We have to be diligent and be faithful so that there would not come a generation behind us who don't know the Lord or the work that he has done for his people. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, the Baals are a, a series of gods. Really, it's a god, but it manifest in, in various physical forms. That was a god of fertility, the Canaanite god of fertility. And uh, without getting too graphic, the worship of Baals involved, we'll just, the, the easiest way I know to put this is, we'll call it cultic prostitution, okay? Uh, it got pretty, pretty wicked, pretty perverse, the way that they, would, that they would worship this God. And you could understand why that would be appealing to people, but they fell into that sin. And a lot of it was rooted in their disobedience because they didn't do what God had told them to do. And that steered them toward sin. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord. That's the byproduct of disobedience, isn't it? They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after the other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunders who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the, Lord's, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. 
Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after the gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Again, there is the result of their wickedness and their sin, right? They knew what was wrong. They knew that doing the same things again and again would just lead to more sin. And yet they did not drop and that's a key word, any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord felt those nations, excuse me, left those nations, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And so the problem is this, and, and you will see this, we will see this throughout the rest of the study of the book of Judges. The children of Israel did not deal with their sin in the way that they should. They, they gave lip service to sin. They gave lip service to confessing things, but there was no true repentance in their heart. And so the problem is they would do what was right for a little while, and then they would fall back into sin and, and thus began a cyclical, a, a habitual pattern again and again of people who walked with the Lord for a season and fell right back into the same ruts of sin over and over, doing the same things again and again and expecting that somehow it would produce godliness. But it did not, and it will not, and it cannot. Because unless we really deal with sin, then we are destined to fall into the same trap. And this morning, what I want us to see, what I hope we will come to understand through this study, through the study that's led us to this point, is that sin that is left, that is, that is left alone, sin that is not dealt with, sin that is unconfessed, sin that is not repented of, always brings destruction. Because sin in its end brings death. The Bible makes that so plainly and painfully clear again and again. Sin brings death. Praise God, Jesus took the place for you and I on the cross. He paid the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven and set free. And yet, it's not until we turn to him that we can truly receive the forgiveness. As long as we're trying to deal with sin on our own, we will fall into the same pattern again and again because we're powerless to deal with sin in our own strength and our own means. So what do we learn from the judges? Three lessons that, that I think will be really helpful for us. And all of this, of course, is pointing us to Jesus. The first lesson is this. We learned the cost of compromise. The cost of compromise. Sin always comes with a price tag. What we see in the first five verses of the book of, or of, of, excuse me, of this chapter of Judges, we didn't read verses one through five, but what we see in those first five verses is that, that 
Partial obedience is really disobedience. The issue was that they didn't deal with sin. They didn't obey God. They didn't drive out the peoples from the land that God had sent them into, and they didn't deal with the sin. And so for generations to come, the same sins, the same idolatry, the same wickedness rears its head again and again in the life of Israel because they didn't deal with sin. And this really helps us to understand there's always a cost to compromise. When we don't deal with sin, it will always bring death and destruction. It will always bring ruin. When I was a boy, my pastor used to say to us all the time, he would say, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it has a price tag that is higher than you want to pay. And that's so true. I've said that, I don't know how many times. I've probably said it recently. Uh, you, someday, you will be able to say, my preacher used to say, right? Because, because I say that all the time because there's, it's a simple, it, it's another one of those witticisms like we talked about, uh, you know, the Einstein and his little witty saying, but it's, it's true. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and has a price tag higher than you want to pay we need to be reminded that sin comes with a cost. And ultimately, that cost is ruin, which is why Peter tells us in the book of 1 Peter, he says that your adversary, the devil, is, is roaming around like a, like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. The enemy wants to devour you. Jesus himself in John chapter 10 says, the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. Satan doesn't want to just make you stumble and make you, oops, I made a mistake. He wants to destroy you. He wants to bring death and destruction and ruin to you. And you have to understand that that's the ultimate, that's where sin leads. And it's a slippery slope. What may start like seemingly a small compromise, such a minor thing, quickly becomes this gaping wound that you can't close because sin brings destruction. There are always consequences of our disobedience. We have to understand the cost of our compromise. For Israel, it was this simple. They did not put away the Baals. They did not put away the foreign gods. They did not deal with the peoples the way that God told them to. And the result was that in time, their hearts turned to these idols. If you and I will not deal with sin and its root causes, if we only give lip service to sin, then we will fall into the same patterns. You know why I see this so much in, in the lives of people? And sadly, if I'm being honest, I experience this even in my own heart as well. When we only give lip service to sin, when we say, yeah, I feel bad, I feel that. And maybe we truly do. I don't mean that we just, that it's just a matter of uh, platitudes, but like if, if all we ever do is just live by those feelings and we don't really deal with sin, then we're going to end up in the same place again and again. Sin requires, I'm going to say it this way, sin requires surgery. It requires heart surgery. We've, we, we don't just need, we don't just need stitches, right? We don't just need to, we, we, need, we need major invasive work. We need a heart transplant that comes through faith in Jesus as we surrender our heart and our life to him. We need to deal with sin ultimately. But the problem is we can't deal with sin 
ultimately. Ultimately, you and I are powerless against sin. If all you ever try to do is be better, you will never get there. Because you may be better for a season, but you will never be better permanently. Because how good is good enough? Let's say you somehow could arrive at a place where you could be perfect from this day forward, from now on. You can't, you know you can't, but let's say you could. How would you deal with all the wrong that you've done in the past? What about, what about the price that must be paid for that? The, the reality is just this. We are hopeless against sin, which is exactly why we need a Savior, Jesus, who gave himself up for us to pay the price for our sin. There's a cost to compromise. When we don't deal with sin, when we don't confess sin, when we don't truly surrender our lives to Jesus and we just try to move forward, or even after we've given our heart to Jesus, if we just try to be a better version of ourselves, we will fall short again and again and again. But we understand that Jesus didn't die on the cross to make us good. He died on the cross because we were dead and he came to make us alive. And as we trust in him and we place our faith in him, we can have new life. The second thing we learn from the judges, the study of the judges, is the danger of a divided heart. The danger of a divided heart. The reason that Israel compromised when it came to sin is because they had a divided heart. Because they were not fully convinced of the goodness of God. Because they did not really trust him with everything. You see this in their wanderings in the wilderness again and again. The children would, something wouldn't go their way, and they would cry out to Moses and then later to Joshua. Did you just bring us all this way just so that we could die here? It was better for us when we were slaves in Egypt, right? And they would say, how foolish is that? It would be better for us to go back into slavery in Egypt than, how, how foolish that seems. And yet, that was the, that was the foolishness that, they, that, they, that was common, that they lived with. For a season, they'd be good, and then for a season, they'd, they'd had enough because they had a divided heart. And so long as we have a divided heart, we will always struggle against sin. Could it be today that if, if you were to be honest and say that I've got, I've got this problem that I keep doing the same things, again and again, and I keep going back, could it be that maybe the problem is you have a divided heart? Maybe you've never really fully surrendered your heart to Jesus. Maybe you've never really trusted in him, like you've, you've given, you, you've, you've, in the moment you've given what felt like the, the right response, but, but maybe you've never really surrendered your heart to him. You can say, well, how do I know? Well, I'll be honest with you, it's difficult for someone else to know that for you. All I can tell you is, is what the, the Bible points us to. I can, I can affirm the truth of the Scripture, and that is this, that when we confess Him with our mouths and believe in our hearts, we will be saved. That's what Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved, not you can be saved, not you're on your way to salvation. You will be saved. So the key issue is, have you confessed with your mouth? I would dare say, for many, we've, you've done that step. But the second part is instructive as well. Have you believed in your heart? Have you reached the point where you were where you were done with 
with sin and trying to deal with sin in your own strength so that you really turn to Jesus. And you said, Lord, it's yours. I surrender all I am to you. That's the key, really. It's about total surrender, total submission. Not about perfection, okay? That's not what it means to believe in your heart. It's not if you confess with your mouth and you never do wrong again. But if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, you will be saved. Have you believed in your heart? Have you, or, or, or are you still wrestling with a divided heart? Israel struggled with a divided heart. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods. How foolish does that seem to us? Now, it seems so silly to us, right? Think about, think about this. I'm going to try to paint the picture, and again, I don't want to be super graphic, but let's get to the heart of the matter here. The Lord parted the waters of the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry ground. They saw the nation of Egypt and its mighty army, the most superior military force the world had known to that point in time. And they saw that army drowned in seas that stood parted as they walked through on dry ground. Every morning they woke to manna, God's sustenance, his provision for them. Again and again, God has shown them signs. Armies much mightier than they fell before their hands. They walked around the mighty city Jericho with its great walls. And on the sixth day, the trumpet blasted and the walls of the city fell. Again and again, they have watched God provide. And yet, they were, they were drawn to the Baals and the Asherah. The Asherah were essentially, they were uh, sacred places trees or, or some kind of a, a wooden carved image. And they would, perform, they would perform cultic prostitution acts. You can, you can figure out what that means. And so for the allure of the worship of false gods, they abandoned their faith in the true God, the one God who provided. And isn't that what we do? For the allure of money and power and sex and fame and these things, we would abandon our hope in the Lord. The problem is all of these things can never give us what we really need. None of those things will save us. And that's the same problem that Israel was dealing with. They looked to false gods and they said, make us happy. Give us meaning. Give us worth. Provide for us. Give fulfill us. And folks, I'm just here to tell you, it won't work. It didn't work then. It won't work today. As long as we serve the Lord with a divided heart, we will always come up short again and again. But praise the Lord. He didn't give up on Israel. He was faithful to his promise, and he remains faithful to us. And so the third lesson that we see from the judges is the power of a patient Savior. The power of a patient Savior. And so we read that again and again, God raises up judges. And for a season, the children of Israel followed the judges. They followed what was right. They followed the voice of reason. They listened to the leaders who loved the Lord, who called them to walk with God. And, and for a season, things would be good. They would experience revival. God would move. And yet, after that leader would die, they would fall back into sin. Because their commitment was only as deep as those that they were following. Again, it's the danger of a divided heart. So if we're to learn any lesson today 
from Israel and their habitual wanderings, their habitual, their, 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 their faithfulness to their unfaithfulness, if you will. If we're to learn anything from them, it's that we can't go on living with a divided heart. We can't go on compromising to sin and its consequences, or else we will fall into the same traps again and again. Praise God, though, he's made a way for us to be forgiven and set free. We can get off the crazy train. We don't have to be the hamster who's stuck on the sin wheel again and again and again, because Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And even in our wonderings, he comes after us. Look at what it said in verse 17. Well, let's go back to 16. And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Verse 18. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. God was faithful to his people even when they were unfaithful to him. We see the power of a patient Savior, that he's willing to pursue them even in their wonderings. In the Gospels, particularly in the book of Luke, we we have in Luke chapter 15 the the three uh, lost things, right? So there in Luke, you have the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son, all of those in Luke chapter 15. And the point of each of those teachings is to show us that God comes after us when we wander from him, that God pursues us. In fact, it's even in the picture of the parable of the lost sheep that we see Jesus says that the the shepherd, the loving shepherd, will leave the 99 to go after the one because God pursues us when we wander. Praise the Lord he does. Praise the Lord that he's faithful to us even when we're unfaithful to him. But if we ever want to experience the real transformation power that is available to us through faith in Jesus, we can't go on living with a divided heart. We have to be fully committed, fully surrendered to him. And that's what we learn. That's what I I want us to see today. You can't live off someone else's faith. Israel couldn't live off of Joshua's faith no more than they could live off of Moses' faith, no more than they could live off of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham's faith, no more than they could live off of their, their mom and dad's faith or their granddad's faith. Or their... You can't live off of someone else's faith. You have to commit your heart and your ways to the Lord. But when you do, through faith in Jesus, he will transform you from the inside out. He'll make you new. He'll perform that heart surgery that you need, removing that dead heart of stone and giving you a new heart of flesh through his spirit that comes to dwell inside of you. It's the power of a patient savior that God chases us when we wonder. And so may we learn the lesson that Israel didn't. May we turn our hearts to the Lord. In a a moment, I should say, we're going to move into a time of of response. And in our time of response today, as we sing a song, we're going to sing the song that no doubt we have sang in countless moments like this in our lifetime. Just as I am, without one plea, that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. That's the words of the song. We're singing, Lord, just as I am, not 
hold on, wait a minute, let me fix this stuff, and then, no. No, we have to recognize that the time is always right to do what is right, to walk with the Lord and, and do what is right. And so we don't have to fix our lives up to come to the Lord. We come to Him just as we are. Lord, just as I am today, I'm ready to surrender my life to you. Just as I am. Lord, you know me. You know I'm a mess. You know my complications. You know my wandering ways. You know my divided heart. God, I want to give it all to you today. Just as I am, I want to be surrendered, fully yielded to you. And if we would surrender our hearts and our lives to him, then we too can experience the power of a patient Savior as we trust in Jesus. So today, if you're here and you would say, you know what? I have a, I'm struggling with a divided heart. Well, here's the good news. This is good, good news for all of us. Our Savior stands ready to forgive us if we would just turn to him in faith. And if you would surrender your heart to him today, friend, you can be saved. You will be saved. You're trusting in Jesus and submitting, surrendering your heart, your life to him. And so in a moment as we stand and we sing that song of faith, if God's stirring in your heart, then I want to encourage you to come. Take me, take Brad by the hand, take Josh by the hand. Let us pray with you. We'll be standing here at the front. We would love nothing more than to guide you through just a prayer of commitment that, that you might surrender your heart to the Lord, that you might confess him as Lord and Savior. Or if you know you've trusted Jesus, but you're still wrestling against the divided heart, today, can I, 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 can I just tell you, I, I don't... I don't have the answer for everything. Like, I mean, and what I mean by that is, I don't know every little thing to tell you, do this, do that, but I know this. I know that God is enough, and I know if you surrender your heart to him, that he will transform you. And so maybe today, just in an act of surrender, you need to come and just kneel here at the steps and use this as the altar place where you just lay your life before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm yours. I don't want to keep living with a divided heart. I want to surrender all that I am to you. Would you give your heart and your life to him today completely so that you might live in the forgiving power of a patient Savior who loves you and gave himself for you? This is the hope that we, that we live by. This is where we place our faith and our trust, not in a better version of ourselves, because we'll never be good enough on our own by submitting to, surrendering to the power of a patient Savior who loves us and who forgives us when we turn to him in faith. Do you bow your head and close your eyes with me? And as I lead us in a word of prayer, I want this to be a moment where we just say, Lord, I want to give all that I am to you. And then in a moment, we'll sing together as we point our hearts to him in response to his word this morning. God, we are grateful that you give us new life as we place our faith and trust in you. That we can come to you much like we're about to sing, just as we are, we can come to you and surrender so that we can experience your saving power at work. And so move in our hearts now, Lord. Transform us, make us new. Renew within us the commitment that there would not be a generation to come after us who don't know you. But Lord, may we recommit ourselves again and again to be a generation that know you, that love you, and that point others to know you as well. Move in us, we pray, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>